Welcome to another Björkness podcast. Ancient DNA buried in the sea floor and the understanding it can reveal about sea ice changes today. I'm Stephen Outen, here with my colleague Ingild Pilskog. Good day. The rapid disappearance of sea ice is one of the most readily apparent consequences of our changing climate. Understanding its natural variations in the past helps us understand the consequences of changes we're seeing today. New work studying DNA from the myriad of small creatures that lived on sea ice thousands of years ago can provide a window into past sea ice changes. We're joined today with Daniela Grant. Hello. <laughs> a PhD student at the University of Bergen, spending her days studying ancient DNA. Welcome to the show. Yes, thanks for having me. So, sea ice, DNA. Not two things I'd instinctively put together. Very fair. <laughs> <laughs> what is the connection? Yeah, so it's not just sea ice. It's uh, I'm in this field of environmental DNA, which just means that we collect all the DNA in a sample. So that can be from a chunk of sea ice or what I'm interested in, which is uh, ocean sediment or mud. Um, or it can also be in the water, um, that type of stuff. So all the DNA in an environmental sample. And how does this relate to sea ice? <laughs> yeah, so in the context of sea ice, sea ice is a really interesting medium because it melts. <laughs> so when we're trying to understand the environments that it supports or the, the different organisms that live there, it can be a bit tricky to pin down. So in the context of sea ice, it's uh, different types of sea ice support different um, communities of organisms. So if you have really thick sea ice or you have kind of this very thin sea ice, you'll have different organisms that thrive. So the purpose of looking at um, environmental DNA in the context of sea ice is tracing the different organisms that are supported by different types of sea ice. That's not quite what I do. I know in the Birkner Center, there are people who work on this um, as well. But then what I do is try to kind of take the knowledge from those components and apply it in the paleo context and look back through time about past sea ice. You can actually tell something about the different types of sea ice just from the colonies of creatures that have lived on them in the past. How do you get to these colonies of creatures in the past? Yeah, so um, this is what I'm hoping to do. I think it's still, we're trying to narrow down exactly what these signals mean. But when we're interested in the paleo context and going back, uh, for example, my time period of interest is 130,000 years ago um, at the transition between the last uh, glacial um, so to do this uh, in my field, we look at sediment records. So we go to the bottom of the ocean floor and we go through, we get a tube full of mud that's full of um, the geological history. So as time goes on, different sediment is deposited and it gets kind of built up on the ocean floor. And then we can use the signals from that sediment core to build back a record. So when you talk about uh, sediment cores, this is similar to the way ice cores occur. We've talked yeah. about these before on the show. So the idea that uh, over time, different layers build up and slowly it gets sort of embedded down. And then scientists come along and take a core of this and they can look back at the different layers and effectively look back in time. Yes, exactly. But this is the same, but you're talking about doing it on the sea floor. Yeah, which is uh, quite the operation. Uh, so we go out with, uh, there's this great Norwegian vessel that I probably don't pronounce correctly, but Kronprins Håkon, the research vessel. Um, it's a fantastic ship and the technicians and everyone that work there are also great. So we go out with these big, um, there's a big crane and winch and you can take these giant long piston cores that can be like 19 meters 
of just straight sediment. It's all very, uh, it's quite the operation, but it's very cool. Whereabouts do you go to take these cores and how often do you go? Yeah, so for me, I've been in Agency. I've been the project that I'm a part of. I've been really lucky. (laughs) Um, So I've been able to go on three different research uh, expeditions. Um, And my work really focuses uh, in the Arctic. So I've gone uh, mostly this region between West Svalbard and Eastern Greenland and the Fram Strait, and then all the way up to like Northern Svalbard and the Yermak Plateau. Um, You can do this type of work all over the world, but we're specifically interested in understanding how, uh, what was going on in the Arctic oceans in the past. So we kind of stick around the Arctic area. I understand that you've got layers of sea ice and on these you get colonies of creatures. These are on the bottom of the sea ice or are they just underneath it? Kind of both. So uh, as you said, the the lower region of sea ice is where you have more of these, yeah, more creatures kind of around, especially at the interface between the ice and the the water below. This is where you have a lot of activity, but there is specific communities associated with the sea ice, even down a few meters in the water column. So it's kind of this whole interconnected ecosystem. And then how does it get from there down into your sediment? Uh, Eventually these organisms, they stop living, they die, (laughs) and they'll float down through the water column and become part of the benthic community. And so what ends up being left there is similar, you can kind of think about like a fossil. So not all of the DNA from the past organisms make it to the floor, but enough of it makes it there that we can pick it up in the record later on. And so in order to do, so the field I'm a part of is an ancient environmental DNA. And the kind of hallmark of ancient DNA is we don't need a lot of DNA to be around. The fragments are quite small, and it's just enough that we can kind of tease out what that was thousands of years ago. You mentioned Svalbard and the sort of the ocean currents around there. There's a lot of sort of recirculations and splitting and so on. If you have a layer of sea ice at the top and creatures die underneath this and they descend down, do they actually deposit on the seafloor? below that or do they get caught up in these currents and spread over a large area how can you tell where what you're finding comes from where you're finding it yeah this is a i think a fundamental question in paleooceanography and using this indirect measurements it's a bit difficult to tell i mean i think the important thing in paleooceanography is usually we're not trying to like distinguish these really fine scale changes of you know a kilometer between here and there how different it is so for example for me the record i'm working on i'm talking about like broad spectrum changes so if i'm picking up a signal that has like a a really big influx of say freshwater creatures um, in that specific outflow even if it had traveled quite a bit of distance i'm still describing a phenomenon that's happening in the ocean so i think that's uh it's a good question i don't think we know fully the answer i know that there's there are people who work on it um but i think as long as you don't try to be too specific and local you can still make some pretty good assessments when you take samples the sediment samples how do you tell how old they are going backwards in time? Yeah, so there's a couple different methods. So up until a specific time point, you can do the radiocarbon dating. This is not my, uh, I work with people who do this. Um, the, they work with dating foraminifera. You can kind of also corroborate different proxies to identify the age. So in Agency, we have uh, experts and a fellow PhD student who work on these microfossil assemblages, and that also helps to determine the ages. So, I mean, carbon dating only goes back about 50,000 years, because after that, the carbon-14's mostly yeah. gone. Um, with ice cores, when we've talked about those past on the show, 
you you know you get deposition from the atmosphere. So for example, if you have a large volcano, you can get uh, volcanic ash deposited, and this will form a layer in the ice core, as one example. But what sort of changes could you have that would affect the sea ice in such a way or affect the ocean in such a way that it would transfer down and then into the sediment and you'd have a layer that you could compare to any other proxy? Yeah, so this is uh, not quite in my expertise, but I do have an answer, actually. One example is I have a record where we split open the core and then there's just this fantastic, like, six-centimeter section of bright red sediment in a sea of gray mud. You have this perfectly constrained... uh, yeah, layer of just red. Um, and it's seen in some other cores in the area, and I don't think we know exactly what it is, but it could be, you know, an outburst flood that's brought some type of sediment with it, or it can be a specific event. Um, so it can be different, like, sediment properties like that, where you see, like, a very marked change in the in the sediment layer. Um, and then there are also things like IRD, which is ice-wrapped debris. So you can see when where the ice has been melting, and you can kind of trace that across the Arctic Ocean as well. I mean, this is not about age, but it's just about the different events. You can also have this in, near Svalbard, where we have layers of coal that have been somehow brought into the ocean. So there are definitely things to look for. You get your frozen mud yeah. <laughs> in a column, meter-long sections, and you know which order they're in. Um, and then from this, you slice it while it's frozen, or...? Yeah, so I mean, we bring it into the lab. We're like uh, totally head to toe in personal protective equipment and not to protect us, to protect the samples. So full sort of biohazard suit kind full of thing. Full biohazard suit, which yeah. has actually been really challenging with COVID because we also can't buy all the stuff that we need sometimes. Of course. Yeah, but yeah, if, you, if you've seen people walking around airports in these like white suits, full visor, like masks and like double gloves, that's what I look like when I, look in the, when I work in the lab. Presumably, though, this has been fantastic for you in some respects in that during COVID, you've still been able to go and work there because it's such a clean, (laughs) safe environment. I don't think there's a safer (laughs) environment to work in, to be honest. Um, Yeah, so we bring in the core and we go through a process of making sure the outside, like the plastic on the core is all very clean. And then that's when we open it. So we, we saw through the plastic and we open the core. And then so you've split your core in half. And we do some documentation, we take some pictures, we measure that type of thing. And then for sampling uh, ancient DNA, the kind of standard is actually we use sterile syringes that you see with needles. And we modify them so that they don't have the top. And you, it's very fun, actually. This is one of my favorite parts. You <laughs> press the syringe into the sediment and you can pull it up so that, it's, that the sediment you bring up has not actually interacted with the air in the room at all. And then we later... So that's the kind of the initial sampling. That's so it's going, go through. it's going straight from being inside the core to being inside a plastic syringe. Yeah. In a clean room. In a clean room that like we bleach, uh, we yep, yep. bleach beforehand. We have UV lights in the ceiling. It's a positive pressure ventilation so that right. you can't have yep. air coming in. And then you'll then subsample that later in another clean area. So in a separate clean room in a hood uh, with more UV um, to keep it clean. And that's when you kind of separate it into little tubes that we then use to do the DNA extraction on, which is a chemical procedure. The mud itself, the the piece, the small section that you're taking out, Mm. uh, is this then put into some sort of machine device to actually analyse and pull out the DNA? Yeah, so so isolating DNA is actually, I think, a lot easier than people might expect. I mean, of course, there's challenges because we're Mm. extracting 100,000-year-old DNA. 
but um, it's usually just uh, whatever DNA you're trying to get, even if it's from a human or, you know, I don't know, strawberry. The main component is you need some sort of like lysis buffer. Um, and then in sediment or in most environmental DNA samples, the hurdle is actually making sure that you stop some of these other kind of molecules from coming along that will get in the way later on. So DNA is quite clean and you can think of these other chemicals as kind of in the way. So salts or random bits of sediment. These are going to interfere with the chemical reactions later on. So the, the procedure for getting the DNA actually out of the sediment requires you to first put in some type of buffer and then we actually have this machine that shakes so it's like a mechanical agitation so that you can break apart different bonds and get rid of the things that we don't really want and I mean this machine is uh, super aggressive it's not just me shaking it's you have to kind of stand back and it uh, <laughs> really yeah. vibrates and then it's just a process of actually using a bunch of different buffers to get the cleanest possible extraction we can so getting the DNA itself is not so hard but then making sure that we get everything in a, in a clean way and then in that process not fragmenting the DNA that we have because that's also a part you can get rid of all of the really nasty stuff but you risk breaking your fragile DNA also. So you've mentioned a few times it's sort of it's not really full DNA change that you're getting it's actually fragmented mm. so do you ever get fragments that you identify and go well this could be any sea creature and this could be something, and that could be something, and you just have no idea what they are. If you've only got pieces of a puzzle, how can you tell what animal it came, what creature it was? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, this is a, a super big thing in environmental DNA, and especially ancient DNA. You can get fragments that don't work, they're too short. So, um, or, yeah, you get these fragments that are the target length that you're after, but you have no idea what it is um, because the way that we trace it back is actually reliant on openly available data from elsewhere. So the only way that I'm able to make sense of the DNA signal that comes out of my sediment is based on the a whole patchwork of research that's already been done or these people who are really interested in what creatures are living now in sea ice because I use their published records of okay, this creature has this sequence in their DNA. And I trace that back to my environmental sample. So if you get a sample that's this fragment and it's just traced to nothing, it doesn't mean that it's not important or it's not, a, it's not some interesting creature. It can be still very relevant, but you just don't know what it is. I think it's a very fascinating part of working with environmental DNA because it also really highlights how much we don't know even about our modern conditions. Um, and it makes me really excited to hear about these like uh, big projects like the Mosaic project that was the ship that was frozen in the ice for a full year. And they, I know they're planning to do a bunch of work with the ecology in the ice and then a lot of the other stuff that's done here in Bergen. I think that stuff is so or that work is very important um, because it just makes my my work also more impactful. In your period, you said that your work focuses on this last interglacial period. Yeah. So um, just for benefit of listeners, what is that and when did it occur? Yeah, so I'm really interested in this time period that happened between about 116,000 to 135, 140,000 years ago. So the transition um, from this last glacial period, um, so a, a, an ice age that occurred 130,000 years ago, and then it occurred when it went into the interglacial. So it came out of the ice age. It was quite rapid on a glacial, on a sorry, on a geological time scale, and it became 
quite a bit warmer than today. Not not so much warmer, but just a touch warmer. So it's a really interesting time period to look at because it, it was a rapid warming um, and it went to conditions that were warmer than we're experiencing today, but could be similar to our future predictions that some of the climate projections have in the coming you know 100 years. So I think this is the most, or is a really interesting time period to look at, um, especially when we want to establish, okay, this was a time when the world was slightly warmer. It could be beneficial for us to understand, okay, what was the ocean doing at that time? And specifically, can we trace natural sea ice variability at that time? Maybe that has some insights for what we might face in the future. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times this project, Agency. Uh, it's a five-year project, and I believe it's just finishing its third year. Um, so how is it going? <laughs> what have you found and what's the future of the project for the next two years? What do you hope to find? Yeah, so uh, Agency stands for a genetic view in sea ice variability. Um, and it's been a great project to be a part of. It's a really kind of great team of people. And it's been great to work on in such an interdisciplinary project, which, you know, I think people always like to say they want to be a part of, but it, it takes a lot, a unique type of work. So, so far, I think it's going quite well. As I've mentioned, we've been able to go on several expeditions, I think more than we were even expecting. So we went actually in July of this year on our Agency uh, cruise, and it went, I cannot stress how splendidly well it went. We went to so many different stations and a part of that project that I'm also a part of and that will be coming up next is Paleoceanography with the context of ancient DNA is really at the kind of beginning of its field and it's a very exciting time. But as I mentioned, part of the problem is being able to understand what all these signals are. So it's useful when you're building this type of proxy to have modern equivalents. So Agency's main goals is to create uh, a modern analog database of surface sediment. So these surface sediments are the zero to one centimeters on the bottom of the ocean floor, and we extract the DNA signal from that to kind of represent what's going on in our modern world. So the freshly deceased creatures from the sea. Freshly deceased, yes. And then that can hopefully inform some more of our paleo uh, considerations so we can make more sense of the data that we do get. And that's going quite well. I mean, we have, I think it's over 150 different locations across the Arctic, especially with this most recent sampling. Um, we have several records coming out of, from the paleo context, so I think it's going. I think it's going quite well. Maybe I'm a bit biased, but it's a very fun project to be a part of. And as you say, this uh, DNA in paleoceanography is kind of a very new field and is expanding. Yeah. And so Bjorkness is right at the forefront of this. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Especially in the Arctic. The big question then: Can you say something about what sea ice was doing <laughs> in the last interglacial period? <laughs> Oh, uh, I want to say yes. <laughs> um, I have gotten a very successful record so far, uh, not quite in the Arctic, but situated um, on the East Greenland current outflow of the Arctic. So looking at the freshwater export, hopefully. And I definitely do find some interesting things. Maybe not enough to give you a specific sentence just yet. Uh, hopefully that comes out soon. <laughs> Maybe in a couple of years towards the last year of the project, we'll have you back and find out what sea ice was actually doing. That sounds great. Sounds good. We've been talking to Danielle Grant about her research into ancient DNA and past sea ice changes. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening.
From myself, Stephen Alton, and my colleague Ingil Pilskog, we hope you enjoyed the show and we'll tune in again next month for another Bjergnes podcast. You have now been listening to a podcast from the Bjergnes Center for Climate Research. The music is by Lee Rosevere, Arcade Montage, BY 3.0.